Starting a podcast can be very time-consuming. I've been doing it for more than three years now, and my biggest challenge was finding a way to distribute my episodes across major audio platforms in a way that was easy, effective, and free to use. That's when I came across Anchor. And the best part is that you can actually make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. So if you're interested, download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. What's going on, everybody? This is George Khalifa, and this is episode 23 of Let's Grab Coffee. I'm here with Alan Gannett, the man, the myth, the legend. Alan is the founder of TrackMaven, so it's an intelligence platform for marketers. Um, they raised, I believe, $26.7 million, employs 91 people, and also has big-name clients like the NBA, NPR. Um, more importantly, Alan recently wrote a book called The Creative Curve, and that's being published in June, but you can pre-order now on Amazon. It's going to be in the link uh, just below here. And it's a really cool book that talks about how to unleash that commercial success in any field. Um, Alan also does really cool interviews with top CEOs from Reddit, Netflix. So you've got to check it out. Also, I'm a little biased because the cover I thought was really cool, like the design <laughs> of the cover. So it's, it's, a, it's a pretty cool book. Lastly, Alan, uh, there you go. <laughs> and, um, you know, Alan's a, a 30 under 30 on the Forbes list in the marketing advertising category. And guess what? He's only 24. So I'm super excited to have Alan here and excited to do this episode with you, man. Thanks for doing this. Thanks, dude. Super excited too. And just, just, just to, just to, just to make sure we're, we got all the the facts right. I'm actually I'm 27. I was 24 when I was on the list, which was which was a okay. few years ago now. But that's okay. It's okay. I'm glad it's you okay. still think I look 24. <laughs> this is good. You look, and there you go, young soul. Yeah. I love it. Um, so, so look, Alan. Obviously, there's a, there's a lot of cool things about you, man. You're an entrepreneur. Uh, you're creative at heart. You have a lot of things in, in that DNA bucket. How did that all start for you? Like, especially at a young age. I mean, doing all this is is often difficult when you're a young entrepreneur. Just uh, talk to us, you know, through that journey. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I've been doing company for about six years now. Um, it's about we're not ninety people yet. We're about fifty-five, and the company started about let's see, so late two thousand twelve. And basically, okay. the background was when I was in college, I had started a performance marketing company back when that was just sort of Facebook marketing was just becoming a thing. And so I would started mm. that, and that got me really fascinated in the sort of world of like where data and marketing intersected. And so yeah. I was doing that, and then um, we sold that for a very small amount of money right around the time I graduated. And so I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, and one of my friends had previously started this, you know, public company he was in his 30s he started this company in his 20s i went public and he was like hey why don't you come be cmo of my venture back startup and i was like uh sure <laughs> and so um you know i joined that as cmo i did that for about a year and i realized two things one i um don't like working for other people good to know good to know and then two is i um i thought it was really interesting this was back in like 2011 2012 how basically marketing was becoming so like there was so much data being spit off by marketing, I call it data exhaust, but most marketers don't want to become data scientists. They want to tell great stories, they want to be creative, they want to you know, create amazing campaigns. And so I saw that there's all this value in the data, but yet no one actually wants to use it. And so my whole idea was if you could become the data company for marketers, like the ones they turn to and they have questions about insights and they want analytics and answers, like that would be a hugely valuable role. And so the mm -hmm. whole idea for TrackMaven was, 
basically become that data layer for marketers where we bring in all their data, we have visualizations, reports, and analytics, and then we also have consulting on top of it where we'll actually help them mine the data for the answers themselves. So if they don't have like an analyst or something like that, we can actually help them. That's very cool. And, and did, did you find it difficult when you're starting this out? I mean, whether it was through raising money, whether it was through <clears throat> just employing and really growing your team. Um, you know, obviously at a young age, you really have to sort of push with that with that needle. How did you sort of navigate with that and, uh, and really solidify yourself in the entrepreneurial ecosystem? Yeah, so for me, I had the benefit of, I'd started a company in college, which wasn't a success, but I mean, we had like five full-time employees, we were bootstrapped, and we had a little bit of notoriety locally, and so there was some good awareness sort of locally about who I was, and I think that, sorry, at Georgia's, I'm just recovering from three days of being out cold, I was like dead with sickness, so this is like newly recovered me. Um, there you still go. a little, a little, uh, um, just stop. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So just don't ask me to sign anything. Um, so um, yeah, I had already had a little bit of reputation from that, which I think was really helpful because I think one of the things most young entrepreneurs don't realize is that no one just invests purely on an idea. They typically invest also on the people. And so you need that either relationship or social credibility. It's really hard to build that overnight, right? And so you need time to develop that. And so that's one of the reasons why I think starting really young is really helpful, whether that's in college, just to like, you want to get your fuck-ups out of the way. <laughs> and you can use that time to sort of build your network, build your relationships, and like, so then when you're ready for the non-fucked-up, like, startup, you'll already right. like, have a lot of the, the things out of the way. Because my first company was like, like, looking back, it was like, I'm glad we sold it when we did, because like, it was never going to get big, ever. Mm -hmm. Interesting. And would you say, because you obviously have a very, you know, <clears throat> strong, uh, like, personal brand online. Like, if you go on LinkedIn, and that, I think that's actually where we first met, you know, you were doing these really cool videos. I'm like, who is this guy? You know, like, <clears throat> you just have the phone, and you'd be like, hey, guys, this is Kobe Bryant. You know, I'm like, okay, I don't know who this is. I have to figure out who Alan is and, and get him on this podcast. But um, what's cool about you is you also have a very st strong personal brand individually. You have a very strong personal brand for, for Track Maven as, as a company as well. Did you always want to do that? Like, was this sort of intentional? Was it like, how did you navigate both? No, it's only it's only been like last year really that I've been focusing on it. Um, I think that marketing is changing generally, so I think people are less and less interested in buying from brands. So you see that with okay. like, you know T-Mobile, their C, it's a consumer it's a consumer company, and their CEO um, John is like the one who's like the face of the company. Like he's grown his hair long, he wears these rebellious jackets, like he's has a sort yeah. of like swagger thing going on. Um, and so like, I think, good man, it's all good. Guys, by the way, this is how much I, I love George. I should be asleep right now, uh -huh. like in bed <laughs> with chicken noodle soup. So I really, um, <laughs> and so I think generally people want to buy from other humans. They don't want to yeah. buy from like a nameless corporate entity. And so I think just generally that's where we see marketing going. Like we think executives need to like be on the forefront. We think your company leaders need to be the ones that are out there selling, advocating. I think Ryan Holmes does this really well with Hootsuite. Um, yeah. You're Canadian, right? Yeah, yeah, okay. Toronto. Okay, <laughs> Hootsuite, that's a Canadian tech bingo, yeah, okay. Um, so I think, I think that's really important. And so generally yeah. that's where marketing's going. And so whether you're B2B or B2C, like in a world where reputation, trust, and authenticity are the key elements of marketing. I think you need to put the faces of your people 
front and center. And so we're trying to sort of, uh, you know, talk, the, walk the talk, walk the talk. Walk the talk. So you know, what, what advice would you, because, you know, obviously, like I, I really understand that, right? Putting yourself out there and just not product pushing. I think what you're also saying is like, actually just provide good value versus like, hey, this is, you know, our product and let's assume what the consumer wants and here's the stats about why our product and service is amazing. Like you see that all the time in traditional marketing. Um, but for the, you raise a really good point for executives. It's really putting yourself out there and, you know, storytelling your product, get people to resonate with you on a human level. Why do you think a lot of people are afraid to do that? Because that's one of the comments I get back as a feedback. Like, George, I don't want to put myself out there. So what advice have you given to executives? I mean, the, the big thing is that people are afraid to fail, right? So people are worried about being, I mean, humans, we're very straightforward. Like, we all want a sense of belonging. We want a sense of acceptance in our relationships, in our work life, in our careers. We're very, very afraid of being rejected, of not belonging, of being shamed. These are all very powerful emotions. Mm-hmm. And I think you need to, like, you need to know that, like, everyone has those feelings. The people who you see who've done the things you want to do also had those feelings at one point. And the biggest thing you realize is that doing it is the only thing that gets you over it. And because, yeah, the first few videos you do, the first few public talks you do are going to be terrible. Like, they're going to be really bad. And then you'll go, look, I shouldn't do this. Like, I'm crap at this. But I can promise you the 10th one, the 50th one, the 100th one, they're going to be pretty good. And all those people you see, whether it's, um, you know, think about even like someone you think of as like a super professional public speaker, like a Tony Robbins. Like, I guarantee he wasn't born out of the womb speaking like that. Like, he at some point, it may have been earlier than you, learned how to do that. But that's something that anyone with exposure and practice can get good at. Like, it's not hard to, it's not physically hard to like enunciate and talk clearly. It's mostly an emotional thing. And so since it's mostly an emotional thing, I think you really have to realize that about yourself and realize like it's going to be a process to get better at it. Yeah, it's, it's very true. I always like think back to the first episode that I did, man, I was, and I'm, I'm typically a comfortable speaker, but that first one I was like, give me people back to, I'm like stuttering, I'm sweating. You know, it's like, it wasn't a, <laughs> the yeah. best uh, And now show. you're like, let's turn on the thing. Let's go. <laughs> like, let's go. <laughs> yeah, no, I get you, man. So like, you know, <laughs> When you, uh, when you talk about comfort, right, um, being an entrepreneur, I think, has a lot of uncomfort, and you have to be comfortable in that, in that constant change. How do you deal with it personally? What are, what are some things you do? Oh, my God. Um, well, I, I get sick every few months because I don't you know, slow down enough. Um, and so you know, the big things I do are I try and keep a really good fitness regimen. So I have a, a trainer. I work out without him. I work out with him. I try and eat healthy. Like, I think so much of it comes down to like, physical health intersecting with mental health like if you aren't don't have time of the day to work out like you probably are working out a little bit too hard because like working out should take 45 minutes to do really well um like you should have 45 minutes to work out otherwise you're probably burning at too many places so i do that i try and take like one long vacation a year and like one short vacation every quarter so like a three or four day weekend I find that is a good sort of tempo for just like keeping myself sort of in check. You know, the thing I always like to remind people is like the president of the United States, Obama, Trump, George H.W. Bush, George W. Bush Clinton, they all took like 20 days of vacation a year. So that's the most intense job, right, in the United States. It has the most responsibilities and like they take vacation. So like vacation is important. Like we've sort of, we know that vacation is necessary to keep yourself at your highest productivity level. So I try and do yeah. that. 
And then I also just try and keep a good like mental health regimen. So like that's like finding time by myself, reading, I go to a great therapist, like I try and just generally surround myself with positive people. Like I think generally keeping your mental health in check is like super important when you're like going at sort of a, a high a high degree of uh, effort, let's say. Yeah, no, and, and you're also a big dog lover, which I which I, I love and I you know, obviously I follow you on, on Instagram, so I'm like I see I, that. I have a, I have a very mischievous four-year-old corgi who's like who's like a total personality. He like he's like very cute, but then if he doesn't get what he wants, he like knows how to tell you, and so he's very rambunctious. I love that man. Um, I was I was also going to ask you know because I think a lot of people watching this you know they're in their twenties, um, they they might be just starting their first venture or it might be a second one, and and they're thinking about raising funding. You know I've always had. I guess, especially in tech, there's always been this instance, especially now, people are more focused on, on the amount that you raise versus the amount that you generate. And I'm Lebanese by, by you, know, or, you know, originally Lebanese. And in, in the Middle East, if you, if you just like talk about business one-on-one, like if I told my, my cousin to family, I, you know, I raised $30 million pre-revenue, you know, I always give a joke, like my cousins would have a heart attack, you know, but <laughs> uh, so we're focused on, on, the, on the generating side, not, not so much on the raise. What advice would you give to someone starting out their business now in terms of raising raising funding, I mean, I think it's it's raise as little as you can, as late as you can, uh, to build to in a way that's like you know, makes smart growth. I mean, m raising tons of money does make you grow faster, but is whether or not that growth is too expensive or not, right? And so, I think you really need to have a really great understanding of your unit economics, and like, what does the business look like with money, without money? What is the impact of that dollar going to be? Remembering that yeah. you know most sales and marketing costs aren't elastic, so if you um, or are inelastic, and so the more you spend on sales and marketing, um, those costs are going to become less and less efficient. Like if you right now spends a hundred dollars to get a customer, if you want ten extra marketing spend, it's not going to be a hundred dollars times ten. It's going to be maybe two hundred dollars a customer now, or three hundred dollars because you have to use more inefficient marketing channels. And so I think it's having that really deep understanding of your unit economics and how that dollar impacts that. That's when you fundraise. Interesting. Did, did you find it hard? Because obviously you raised from, from pretty good name VCs as well. And uh, I think the, the total was 26.7, correct? I think that was the... A little bit higher, but yeah. Little, okay. Um, which is which is interesting. And I'm, I'm sure you did it in tranches, maybe like a small seed. What was... The, did you actually raise a... Uh, initial seat or, or blood money, yeah. as I call it, family friends round. Um, I raised it wasn't family and friends; it was like more friends and angels. But I raised like eight hundred thousand dollars seed round, and then a bunch more rounds. Sort of it gets complicated from there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah, it's because I mean, obviously I, I'm on the investment side of the industry too, and I see like the Series A, the Series B, the C, and, and, and those tranches sometimes complicate the cap table. And so for a lot of startups, they get too bogged down with like just raising money that they forget to execute. You know, so uh, yeah. I mean, I, I don't think raising money is necessarily a good thing. I just think it's a thing you do. I think we happen to use it as like a sort of proxy for success because it's probably one of the few proxies we have for private companies, and we don't have many better ones. But it's not inherently a good thing. I mean, lots of companies raise lots of money and just use it to complete waste, and then they have all this, you know, all these investors who they have to pay back. And it's a whole mess. So. Yeah, no, hundred percent. So, so what would you say is your, you know, as, as the founder of Track Map, and what would you say is your leadership style? 
you know, employing 50, 50 employees yeah, so, so far. I try and be pretty like, um, I try and be pretty servant leader oriented. So like, you know, trying to give people the resources they need and get out of their way, try and serve them. So be seen as a resource. And then, you know, I work really closely. I have a really effective president. And so I really focus mm. a lot on corporate culture, product, strategic, financial vision and getting that okay. in shape and then communicating that to all our stakeholders. So employees, investors, customers, prospects, analysts, and getting everyone sort of marking the same beat. Um, and so that's what I really focus on. And then I have a really great president, Tim, who helps make sure that on a day-to-day -day basis, all that stuff is happening. And so we have a good sort of yin and yang relationship. And so what, what do you look for when, when actually hiring someone for Track David? What are some of the top qualities that you would look for? Oh my God, I have so many. Um, so curious, How long do you have? <laughs> curious is important. I think, you know, in a startup, everything's ambiguous. So like if you're looking for, here's a playbook on how to do this, like yeah. you're screwed. So curious is really important because self-learning is so important. Mm, okay. I think nice, like we have very few not nice people. Um, actually, we have no not nice people right now. But like generally, we're very good at like weeding out jerks, and so not having any jerks, I think, makes just going to the office like nice. Like people, like everyone here is very pleasant and like very hardworking and determined. But like they're not gonna like yeah. punch you in the face. Like they're gonna like talk to you about it, and so like that's good. And then I think like sort of tying in with that, I think it's obnoxious to say this, like, um, but like humble. It's kind of silly to be like we're humble, but like I think everyone here is very like very dedicated, very like, let's just get this stuff done. Like down to earth. Down you know. to, yeah. We have a Midwestern approach, even though we're not in the Midwest. So yeah. I don't know if, <laughs> well, does, do Canadians get that reference? We'll go with it. Yeah, no, a hundred percent. And for us, right. you know, you, you say, sorry, at the end of every sentence, yeah, or exactly. you say, hey, apologize for everything. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to cut this clip by the yeah, way. From this yeah, exactly. Can't be offensive. <laughs> the other thing I learned about Canadians recently is you guys feel very strongly about straws. Really? Oh, oh yeah. I, you know what, man? This is very timely. This is new. This is very true. Yeah, this is new. I was at a bar yesterday. Um, we sort of went out, and um, like the bartender was telling us, they have these new new straws actually to, straws. to eliminate waste. Yeah, and to be more environmentally friendly. So that's when I first learned about it. I'm like, okay. It's starting in so, Vancouver. I was in Vancouver a month ago, and they were like really serious about like, we do not serve straws. And I was like, got it. No straws. No straws. <laughs> I'm good. No straws. <laughs> Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's I asked interesting. someone in the see audience at the conference I was at, I was like, should I make a joke about that? They're like, no. Like, they'll, like people might think you're not down with the cause. And I was like, okay. <laughs> We're sensitive, all right, Alan? Watch yeah. out, man. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> a lot of Canadians watching this. I don't want, you know, <laughs> I want people showing up at my door. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Sorry, Vancouver. We're fine. We're cool. <laughs> so jokes, man. So for you, look, like, obviously, you know, you're running, you're running this company, right? And, and, you know, I guess on the side, I don't know if you had any, any side hustles apart from that, but you obviously wanted to start writing this book. When did that thought come about? Uh, did you always plan for writing a book? Was was it always in the, in the plans for you? It's been a while. So it was like 2015. I started sort of formulating it and working on it. Um, so it's been a long time. I mean, everyone in my industry writes a book. Everyone in MarTech, like CEOs of HubSpot, Marketo, like they all write a book and it's usually around our stage. So And so... Like I sort of knew that at some point I'd have to write one because it's it's when you're trying to sell, you know, sell to enterprise marketers, like it's a good sort of thing to have. And I always like I was a political science major, like I like writing. I used I, you know, wrote a column for Fast Company online. So like I, I sort of 
I knew that was something I was interested in. And so um, I was giving a talk and a bit to marketers about how you know, they think creativity is this like magical, divine thing, but really, if you look at the source, real histories of creativity, like the stories of creative genius are really the study, the stories of like intentionality and planning and like systematic hard work, not just brute hard work, but like systematic hard work. And so I was giving that talk, it was a very superficial talk, um, and people like ate it up, it seemed like it was very motivational, got really good responses, so that sort of morphed into like, a book for marketers about creativity that was meant to be sort of inspiring and then as I was working on it sort of morphed into wait like it's not just marketers that have this issue like all creatives have this issue like so many creatives stop before they start because they're like oh well like I'm not Mozart like I wasn't born a child prodigy and like <laughs> they don't realize that like Mozart had like a helicopter dad who at the age of three basically told him that he'll only love him if he becomes a great musician and you're going to practice three hours every day with the best music teachers in all of Europe. And the first real piece of original music Mozart wrote when he was 17, which was like 14 years of like daily three-hour practice with the best teachers in all of Europe. Like that's not, that's not the story of like popping out of the womb and writing music, right? That's very yeah. different. And so mm. I sort of realized that that message had a broader application. And so the book is split up into two parts. The first half of the book is debunking this sort of like the inspiration theory of creativity. This idea of creativity is like mystical, magical thing that like no one can explain. It, it's actually pretty yeah. explainable. Like science has a pretty good grasp on like how it works, what causes it, how you can enhance it. In the second half of the book, I interviewed about 25 living creative geniuses. These are people who've won Oscars, Tony Awards, Emmy Awards, um, you know, billionaires, startup founders, a whole bunch of folks, you know, YouTube vloggers. And um, so basically all these living modern creatives about their creative process. And I found these four things they all did to actually be intentional about their creativity. And so I explained those four things and I explained the science of how they work and how you can apply them to your own creative endeavors. So it's meant to be like a much more actionable, much more science-backed sort of book in the genre. Because I think a lot of the books in the genre kind of suffer from being like just like yeah. – they have like one big point and it's all anecdotes. This book has a lot of points. So like, it's like pretty, it's pretty thorough, but it's still fun and interesting. I think, I hope, I hope you don't hate it, but we'll see. No, oh, man, come on. You can't hate Alan's work. But you know, what I, what I love about this too, man, is I, I love the fact that you bring the interviews in there because I think what, what, what it can also do is to your point, like you sort of broke down the science of creativity and then the formula of what success looks like versus the misconception of it. Mm -hmm. But then in the interviews, I think what people will find from reading this book is, is the patterns. So, you know, if you read like, you know, 20 responses of how people approach it, if you see a pattern, then there's there's something there for, for you to actually execute on as, as an action of light. And, and that's what I love. 100%. Yeah, the book is the book is definitely a book where you'll take away with like clear to do's, which I think are like the best type of books. Um, yeah. yeah, I want you to walk away not just being sort of entertained, but being like, oh, shit, I need to like change my daily habits. Yeah. And, and, and did you like, I'm just curious because uh, obviously this whole process, I've, I'm always interested by the process of things. And so, you know, I, I kind of want to break it down. For, and I think a lot of people would be too. Uh, but it's obviously something big for you too, right? I mean, it, it, it's, it's, it's lovely, man, to have like a, a tangible to say like, these are my package thoughts and this is something I worked on for, for two and a half years, right? It's not something easy to do either. You know, you can't discredit that, that hard work. One, um, how did you go about it? Because I know you have a publisher as well who's helping. Um, you know the, the the design of, of the cover, 
um, just even the interviews, like how did you go about reaching out to these CEOs? Like there's so much in there that I want to, yeah, I want to. So, um, the process was pretty cool. I mean, I had a pretty romanticized process in that um, one of my best friends was a published author. He introduced me to his agent. His agent's a really yeah. big deal in the business book world, and um, his agent really liked the idea very early on. And so I worked with him a lot on sort of shaping the early sort of book proposal and doing all that sort of stuff. And I, I took my time on the whole thing because I like have a lot of stuff going on. So this was like a you know Sunday mornings um, and like airplane rides kind of project. And so over a few months, it was like eight months, we sort of got like the first couple sample chapters in shape, wrote a proposal. Right. And then it works a lot like VC. You basically you send out the proposal to a lot of different publishers. You see who's interested. You have follow-up meetings. Um, like it's pretty straightforward. And then, and then you basically pick a publisher, and then you like work on the book. And so for me, the interviews were mostly friends of friends, cold emails. You know, I'd interview someone and ask for recommendations. And so it was a lot of hustle and a lot of like pleasant persistence of being like, hey. You should interview me. And once, <laughs> once you get the first few, it's a lot easier because you can sort of, you have the social credibility of the other ones. Like, hey, these three people did an interview with me. Like, they're pretty famous. You know what I mean? And so, like, like do you want to do an interview? And so that sort of spiraled into, um, you're getting a list of, I think ultimately it was like 25 people and like the list is really good. Some of the, most of them are on the website, the creativecurve.com, but there's a few more that, yeah. you know, we can't put all of them on the website because otherwise it'd be a huge page. Um, and so it's a lot of really fascinating people and then the cover and all that stuff. So basically when you work with a big publisher, they have, um, they sort of coordinate the art. So we use this really fantastic designer, Rodrigo Corral, who he mostly does a lot of fiction work. So he did like, um, a lot of, you know, Diaz's books and like does, he's done a lot of famous covers, he did Jay-Z's cover. And so like, he's like really, really talented. Um, and so working with him was really cool just to see his creative process. Obviously, when you write a book about creativity, you sort of fall in love with the creative process. And so um, that was really fun. And, like, I'm a big believer that, like, the covers sell books. And so we went through, like, a lot of iterations because we were like, okay, we need to find something that we all love. And so, um, yeah, we found the one that currently is, and people seem to really like it. And, you know, it pops um, off a shelf really nicely, and it gets the point across. So, yeah. What would you say was was the favorite favorite thing you know, uh, I guess that, that you process. found in, in the book. Yeah, whether it's in the process or in the book, like what's what's that one thing that you, that you really uh, you know enjoyed writing about? I loved um, two things. I loved meeting people. So like, I'm a extrovert, basically professionally, right? Like, spend my whole day like meeting customers, meeting prospects, like talking to marketers. So like, my job is to talk to people, um, and so that was really fun for me. And got you know get to meet a lot of interesting people and like people who are maybe in different walks of life or outside of tech. So that was cool. And then um, I'd say the other thing was like you know the final sort of twenty percent where you go from like outline to rough draft to like a finished draft, and that's actually pretty quick because actually writing the text of the book isn't terribly difficult compared to like getting all the raw materials and organizing them. And so yeah. seeing that come together at the end was just really cool. Because I think, you know, in the back of your head, you have a little bit of self-doubt until it's done of, like, how the hell am I going to write a book anyone's going to want to read? And so just seeing mm -hmm. it sort of come together at the end um, and having the first few external people read it, that was really cool. Just, like, being like, oh, okay. Like, especially because when you're writing a book about creating 
commercial success. <laughs> you kind of need to write a book that's commercially successful. And so, knock on wood, you know, um, otherwise it's a little awkward. So, Did you find it, because obviously TrackMaven focuses on the intelligence, right, for, for which is a, really a platform for, for marketers. Um, did you find that, that this sort of complements it too? I mean, everything, you know, is, is sort of revolves around tech, but this gives you that, I guess, the softer, you know, t tangible, uh, I guess, uh, perspective as well. Like, yeah, it's, I mean, it's already been super helpful because, you know, for a lot of our customers, they typically think of us as like the data guys. And like, right. we, we want people to think of us as like, no, 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 we're the data guys who help inform like your creativity. And so it's been really helpful to have like a really thorough perspective on creativity and like just generally like having people turn to us for questions around creativity, like that's a really useful exercise. Um, so yeah, it's, it's been great and it's been fun. I like did a, I spoke at one of our customers like company kickoffs and like about the book and like just like getting them excited about that is like a super fun way. So yeah, I think books are like a really, you know, obviously a pretty classic part of like enterprise software marketing. Um, yeah. But um, I see why, I mean, they're like, it's a really good sort of like clear, like here's a bunch of package philosophy and point of view in one place and you can read this and like it's sort of has a start and an end um and it's physical you can take it away you can leave it on your desk and so i think it's a really it's really effective and then obviously the other benefit from a, a company perspective is like you know every time you like, you know we do a book thing like we're talking right now it's like we talk about the company too and so you know exactly. it's i think we'll get you know, this year, way more PR than we've ever gotten for the company, mostly because of tie-ins with the book. And so, that's great. Yeah. You know what's funny, man? I was, I was actually in a meeting once, uh, and this guy's, the first time I, I meet him, but instead of giving me his business card, because that's, you know, typically when you're, you're first meeting in, in that first encounter, giving me a business card, uh, pulls out his book, and he's oh. like, hey, just want to give you a, a signed copy of my book. Okay. I just wrote it. I'd love, I'd love, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. I thought that was super cool. I yeah. mean, you know, love the, the sales and the hustle, but... But that is kind of, that is kind of cool. Totally, it's it's like yeah, it's, you have to not be obnoxious about it, but it's it's cool, right? It's like it's like here's and so yeah, I think you know we'll definitely be giving customers like you know when we have meetings, we can leave behind a book or two, like give them a copy, and it's a good way to like it's a good gift, better than sending like a box of chocolates, right? So. And so from the book, uh, Alan, because obviously a lot of my friends too are not just in tech and marketing, and uh, you know they might not have that that creative curve per se. Uh, they're creative in other ways, but you know some are engineers. For example, I actually had this discussion with my roommate last night, and he was telling me like, I'm not sure. Like, I don't know. I find engineering kind of, you know, not not the most sort of sexy thing to share, especially not sure not sure how to really story tell it on LinkedIn. Like, would people even want to read it? What advice would you give to those types uh, of people who are not necessarily in our in our category in our so, space? I mean, so I think a couple things. One, read some good books on storytelling. Right, um, storytelling. Edge recently came out. There's a book called Storynomics that came out recently. Like, just read about storytelling, the art of storytelling, um, yeah. and I think you can apply stories to any field. And it, maybe it has to be a metaphor, right? But um, yeah. you know, some of the one of the, some of the best business books I've ever read are uh, Patrick Lencioni. He wrote the book The Five Dysfunctions of a Team and the Advantage, and they're all business fables. And so, rather than telling sort of HR or management best practices through like do this, not that, like Peter Drucker style. He's like, he writes a whole novel about like this like imaginary company. And it's like amazing, because you're like, oh, like this is like, it's like fun and interesting and engaging, and he teaches through that. Um, yeah. And so like, and there's another book by, I can't remember, I'm blanking on the name, but by Diana Kander, 
that's also a startup novel and it teaches startup lessons through it about the lean startup process and like it's like that's really cool right that's mm. really cool and so um i think it's called all in startup but like that's an example of where you may not be able to tell stories um through engineering talk but you can do stories that are metaphors into engineering for example i think there's a novel yeah. that explains databases through an through a novel there's like this famous anyway engineers know what i'm talking about but yeah, yeah. you can learn you can learn how to leverage stories as a tool in any field right and, and, for, and for you what's that one thing that you would say for people maybe on linkedin who are sharing like how do you go about sharing because sometimes people are like stuck between the professional the personal and i always tell them like just because you're trying to be personal doesn't mean you're not professional yeah you know being informal and being professional are not the same thing so how do you um, How do you go about? It? Yeah, I think I think I try and be really just myself through all, through all my stuff, and so like. Project. Yeah, and so like I'm like I'm like a you know I'm like a young guy. I live in the city. I really like dogs. I grew up in New Jersey, so I curse sometimes too much. Like you know, it's like, and I'm generally happy, and so like you know, that's what I try and sort of be throughout all of my interactions with people, and I find it's a lot less stressful than sort of being like this is me at work, this is me at home. And so like, there's obviously some things that, you know, you'd probably keep separate, but generally yeah. I'm just trying to be really authentic in myself. And, you know, if there's something that you are passionate about and care about, I think you should share it on LinkedIn, um, whether or not it's directly work related or not, right? And so I think, you know, the people, the, the thing that I always sort of struggle with is as people, especially early in their careers, forget, yeah. That like every company is just comprised of a whole bunch of people, right? So yeah. like none of these institutions, there's no, there's like for most of them, other than the ones that own buildings, like there's not really like some physical thing that is like them, right? Most of them is just the people and the set of norms and rules that they've agreed to and how they operate and all that stuff. And so I think once you sort of see past that, you sort of realize that, um, you know, being genuine and authentic in yourself is actually probably the best path. A, it's the least stressful to you, and B, it's the one that I think is most appreciated by other people. Mm, love that tip. So last question before we end this. I know you have a lot of stuff to do. Um, for someone watching this right now, man, they're young, you know, they're ambitious, they're the hustler too, and they're trying to start, whether it's a side hustle, it's a venture, what advice would you give to them right now? Um, my biggest advice is to pick up the phone and call people more. I think the biggest thing that most people do is, um, especially when they're, they're young and they're starting companies, is like they rely way too much on email, and yeah. that's not how business gets done. Like you need to be in person, you need to be on the phone, you can only Skype call your way to so much. Um, like you need to travel and go and get be in the room, so to speak. And so, like you know, the thing it's like that I always think people think is funny is like um, I was driving with a friend the other day, a work friend, and. Um, I was like, hey, do you mind if I do calls in the car? And he was like, sure. I don't think he realized I was literally on three hours of phone calls. And um, th that's a lot of the job. It's just like keeping up with people. And like, you know, I, I love it. Like I love talking to people and I love like learning and like, you know, keeping up with people's lives. And so it's really fun. But like that is a big part of like what you need to do because otherwise, you know, you're not going to get it done through just email. Like email is boring. It's transactional. There's people get too much of it. People aren't getting enough phone calls. People want to like, other than people who are like our age, most people want more phone calls. So, get it done in person. Go to networking events. And what I 
why I love, as soon as you said, said that, I'm just like, yes, thank God. Just because, you know, people have these misconceptions about millennials too. Like they think we do business over Snapchat or something yeah. like with self. <laughs> yes, man. So I'm, I'm really glad you, you brought that up. Man, I really want to thank you, Alan. Um, you know, obviously, I learned a lot personally. I know a lot of people will take value from this. Please check out the Creative Curve. Pre-order it. Buy it. You know, follow uh, Alan on LinkedIn, Instagram. Stay close to the story. Visit Rackmap and all that stuff is going to be below. Listen uh, Alan, to this guy. keep fucking it, man. <laughs> Anything he says. <laughs> I appreciate guys. you, man. Cheers, bro.